it was in 2017, Trump was already in power and he, in 2017, I was traveling to a film festival when I learned that he was resigned in DACA, like he was ending the program as it existed. And so in 2017, I had already been writing for maybe three or four years and everyone in the industry that I knew, publicists, people in festivals, people that work in film, I've never told them about my status. Carlos Aguilar is a Mexican-born film critic whose work has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, RogerEbert.com, and more recently, the New York Times. But the path there wasn't easy at all. In the latter part of 2022, producer Fernando Hernandez talked with Carlos about how being bilingual has helped him bring underrepresented stories into the mainstream American public. But above all, how being a DACA recipient made all of that possible. And what could happen if DACA, the Deferred Action Care Act that protects young immigrants, is written off. Carlos Aguilar has been living in Los Angeles for longer than he ever did in Mexico City. Before arriving in the U.S., Carlos had some English lessons at a public school packed with over 50 students per classroom. I do remember that when I came to the U.S. Uh, in my first ESL class. That's English as a second language. My teacher, uh, who was a Mexican man, ESL classes are a whole universe on their own because it was also like the first time I had ever engaged with anyone that wasn't Mexican but spoke Spanish. The part of Mexico City where I'm from, which is sort of like the northern part with the Basilica de Guadalupe, is it's sort of like working class, blue collar people. I never met anyone that wasn't Mexican. That changed when he left the city that he has never returned to in over 20 years. But we'll go back to that later. There were people from El Salvador, people from Honduras, people from Guatemala and other parts, you know, and so this teacher, one of the exercises that he had for us was he made us sing the Beatles, Hey Jude. So he would have us sing Hey Jude as a class so we could learn the pronunciation of uh, English, uh, the lyrics and whatnot. The memories of sort of like being in that bubble of people that are Spanish speakers from different countries, but they're all trying to learn English is kind of a very unique place to be. Carlos says that he managed to complete his ESL courses in less than a year. For others, it takes years to complete set courses in order to join the regular classes. I was sort of very eager to make that transition. I've always been someone that reads a lot and writes a lot. And so language was always something that interests me. So within a year, uh, I only was in ESL for one year, for ninth grade, and then for 10th grade, they placed me in like English only classes. And so I continue learning the language. It's funny to me that now I make a living writing mostly in English. Yes, it is my dominant language when it comes to work, but I feel like I've managed to maintain Spanish as something that's present every day in my life because of what I watch and the people I talk to. And so maybe 
I don't know how much that has contributed to the fact that I still feel like I have an accent. You know, people tell me that I have an accent that that doesn't kind of doesn't go away uh, even after almost 20 years living in the U.S. Does it bother you, know? you having an accent? It doesn't bother me, but I do find it an interesting thing when native speakers point it out because it feels like it feels like it's more of a problem to them than it is to me because I mean, I know where I'm from. I relate to that. I remember I used to try to mask my accent a lot, but it came to a point like probably four or five years ago when I just said, I just went to try to be as clear with my words and with my ideas. And I think the accent is to an extent not that necessary. Yeah, you know what's interesting to me? Since I, I write for a living, I once it only happens one and I think is because one once because one of my editors at the public one of the publications that I write for, his family is from Spain. And so he speaks sort of like a little bit of Spanish or he understands it. And something curious that he told me once is that when he read my work in English, he could tell that my brain or the way I structured things was in Spanish. So even though I was writing in English, there's something about the way that I write or the format, you know, the way that I use sentences. And I think it was a very interesting thing to me because I never really thought about how your foundational language or your native language influences the way you relate or the way you communicate in another language. So so it's always sort of like a an interesting, you know, uh, uh, exercise in navigating languages when I'm writing in English. And also, like, whenever I interview a filmmaker or an actor who is from Latin America or from Spain, I always interview them in Spanish because I feel like that's where they can give me the best answers or sort of, like, express themselves more naturally that that if me and them were talking to each other in English, which always feels kind of weird. And so I interview them in Spanish and then I translate the conversation into English, which is also a very interesting exercise to me that I, when I do this, I listen to the conversation in, in Spanish and I type it out in, in English. So I don't, I don't, I don't do it at first in Spanish and then translate. So like directly from listening to it in, in, in Spanish, I type it out, translate it into, into English. Talking about your work, you have like this really interesting cultural um, role in the United States as a film critic. So, but you're a bilingual film critic. Do you think your work has an impact somehow as a bilingual film critic? Yeah, I mean, I feel like because... I haven't been to, to Mexico in almost 20 years. I'm a DACA recipient, which means I'm undocumented and I only have a work permit. And so I'm not allowed to travel back to Mexico. And so I haven't been there. But I, even though I haven't been there in so long, my mother and my brother, they still live there. And so I always feel like I'm I'm very sort of connected and attached to that part of me. And so that reflects in that I'm always trying to cover and give a platform to talent from Mexico, from Latin America, you know. I recently was able to interview Tenoch Huerta for the New York Times, you know. My ancestors would often say, only the most broken people can be great leaders. Tenoch Huerta is a Mexican actor whose breakthrough moment came with his role as Namor in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Carlos had to make a case for profiling this rising star that has also appeared on Netflix's Narcos. 
I, I was able to talk to Tenoch in Spanish and, you know, then translate that interview in English. And that was interesting because they also, the New York Times published it both in English and Spanish. It's always really great when some of my work gets published in Spanish because my mom can see it, you know, because my mom doesn't speak English. And so even though she's very proud of my work, she can't really read it, you know. And so when something that I write also gets published in Spanish, um, it's always a great satisfaction. But yeah, I think it's it's influenced me because I'm able to sort of like try to use my platform to open those spaces or to highlight talent that comes from those worlds. And because I'm, a, I'm bilingual, I'm able to talk to them in Spanish and sort of like communicate their message or their story better than if they were trying to give me their story in English, you know, whether if they were struggling or even if they're even if they're fluent, I feel like there's always something missing when you don't speak your your first language. And so I feel like that gives me sort of like a unique position to talk to these these artists in Spanish. Deferred Action Care Act, or DACA, is the executive order signed by President Barack Obama back in 2012. It gave young immigrants that met certain criteria, work permits, and protection from deportation. This changed Carlos's life for the better. Now, let's be clear, this is not amnesty. This is not... For a long time, after finishing high school, I worked at a fast food restaurant for many, many years, you know, because that was the only job that I could get, you know, being undocumented. It was a very big life changing thing because even though it wasn't sort of like a full legal status, it now allowed me to work legally, which means that I could look for other options, you know. And so I started writing for myself, you know, a personal blog, and eventually other places hired me to start writing for them. I won this like scholarship to go to Sundance in 2014. And the Sundance scholarship was a tipping point. From then on, Carlos went on to write for RogerEbert.com and other outlets. But as the tide was finally turning on his favor, Donald Trump got elected. And DACA has been hanging on a thread ever since. It was in 2017. I was traveling to a film festival when I learned that he was resigned in DACA. He was ending the program as it existed. And so in 2017, I had already been writing for maybe three or four years And everyone in the industry that I knew, publicists, people in festivals, people that work in film, I've never told them about my status. So whenever they would ask me, oh, when was the last time you went to Mexico? Or, you know, when are you going back to Mexico? Like, I would have to sort of like give like a runaround answer and not be truthful about it. I probably only talked about it, you know, with other people that were in the same situation as me. And so I was already writing about film So when Trump decided to resign DACA, I felt that it was important for me to tell people in the industry, uh, not people in my personal life, because people in my personal life already knew, but people in the industry that I was directly affected by this thing that Trump was doing, because I feel like for a lot of people, when it comes to immigration and undocumented people, for a lot of Americans, 
it's sort of like a hypothetical thing, right? It's those people that I don't really know. They are the workers in the restaurant. They are people that are like not really in my life. And so I wanted to sort of like let them know that someone in their life, someone in their industry was directly affected by this. It wasn't these faceless, nameless people being affected. It was me. And so I felt like within all the powers, powerlessness that you feel as an undocumented person, because your life depends on the decisions of people in power, your life depends on a document that you don't have. I felt like that was sort of like the most powerful thing that I could do, you know, share my story and make this issue feel more urgent and real uh, for people in the industry. So they knew that that people that are undocumented or DACA recipients are everywhere in all sorts of careers in all, the, you know, in different fields. But I do feel like it was, I was afraid because, you know, you never know what people think about these things. And people in the industry now knew. Carlos published an essay in July 2nd, 2020. He titled it, How DACA and My Immigrant Experience Shaped My Perspective as a Film Critic. I want to share this quote. On the surface, I may only be writing about movies. But in doing so... I am defying the preconceived notions of what's feasible for undocumented folks. We are part of every industry and do our best to thrive within them, despite perpetual hostility. There are DACA recipients who are activists, lawyers, doctors, nurses, scholars, filmmakers, film critics, and everything in between. Our very presence is an act of resilience. The reaction was overwhelmingly positive. Like people were very supportive, reaching out to me and were very moved and very encouraging and supportive and, and whatnot, which I'm very thankful for. You never really know how people feel about these, you know, quote unquote, controversial issues uh, that shouldn't even be controversial. You know, like people should, you know, no, pe no person should be illegal, quote unquote, illegal. So that was sort of like a big step. And I think ever since that happened, it was very liberating. However, two years later, that hope fizzled away. By the time you're listening to this podcast, you probably know that over 700,000 young immigrants won't have a path towards citizenship in the foreseeable future. On the contrary, DACA may well be reversed this year, 2023, by the Supreme Court. Carlos is more than aware of this situation. His situation. Yeah, I mean... I renew my permit this year mm -hmm. and that will last until 2024 and and then we'll see what happens then you know it's it's always one of those things of like you live your life in two year increments you aren't able to plan too much ahead because every two years you have to renew this thing and hope that the laws or the rules in place still allow you to to renew it And so it's a very sort of uncertain way to live life. But at the same time, being one of the 700,000 or 800,000 people that qualify for DACA is still a very privileged position to be in, in comparison to the millions of people that don't even qualify for DACA, right? That are entirely unprotected, that don't have work permits. Sometimes Carlos can help but feel some sort of guilt. I have a, a very close friend of mine who I met in high school and we met here and she was just one year older than the limit for DACA. And so by a few months, she didn't qualify. 
there's like a sense of guilt too, you know, because it's 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 a that literally changed my life in terms of the opportunities that I was able to get just by having a work permit. You know, yeah, it's still it's it's difficult for me to you know almost impossible for me to travel abroad or like complicated and difficult and. I try not to like have a lot of hope that things are going to change because I feel like when you have a lot of hope, you, you prepare yourself, you put yourself in the way of disillusion, you know, you kind of like. All of you in the uh, House of Representatives who have just been reelected. This bill, the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 that I'll sign in a few minutes. It's been over 36 years since the U.S. Congress passed IRCA, the landmark bill from 1986, signed by President Reagan, that provided amnesty to millions of migrants. Nothing of that caliber has been put into law ever since. Of a truly successful bipartisan effort. What message would you like to get, up, get out about the DACA program? You know, I know that it is not a permanent solution, that it excluded millions and millions of people, that it's unfair that people that have been in this country for decades and decades and contributing to this country, paying taxes, forging lives here, planting roots here and working every day, don't qualify for any protection or, you know, for even sort of the most basic human rights. You know, there's people that haven't seen their parents or their brothers and sisters or their siblings who live back in their countries for decades. People have missed funerals and weddings. My dad died in, in 2018 and I wasn't able to go to his funeral, you know. So I, I would encourage people to think about those sort of like human, more personal issues that come with immigration. You know, we always think about the bigger picture of like the economics and the taxes and the politics and the bills and the border security and all these other things. It, it's always about sort of like reminding people that when we're talking about these things, we're talking about people's lives and not just numbers. So we, we've just discussed that. I mean, you shared with us that you've been planning your life in two year periods, right? And so what would you do if you get deported to Mexico? I don't know. It's something that it's such a hard thing to think about that I I choose not to think about it because I feel th that when you migrate somewhere, you leave your life behind, you uproot yourself, specifically for me, because I didn't come with my parents or my brother. I left. My brother was eight years old when I left. Now he's an adult. To do that was so difficult that I feel like being deported would be doing that again. Now, leaving everything I built here, the relationships I have here, what I worked for so long, it would be such a such a massive heartbreak and yeah, such a massive heartbreak that I don't know if I could handle it. I feel like it would be too much of a shock to the system to even be able to to function anymore. Despite the end of DACA looming over Carlos and many other young humans, Carlos never stops working. Before our interview, he was preparing for another one with Oscar winner Alejandro G. Iñárritu and the crew of his latest film, Bardo. You know, it's interesting to be doing this interview right now because over the past week, I think three or four 
of the articles that I'm working on are actually from people that I interview in Spanish. Mm. And so this week I've been translating and, you know, Uh, translating interviews from Spanish to English and talking to people in Spanish a lot for articles that will be published in English. And so I've been doing a lot of that in the last week, you know, because I'm I'm talking to, I talked to Daniel Jimenez Cacho, you know, the actor for Bardo. I talked to Alejandro González Iñari, to, to Eugenio Caballero, to Diego Calva, who's a Mexican actor who's in Babylon, the movie from Demis Chazelle. America the Bilingual is a show about what people can achieve and how their lives have have been impacted by learning a second language or a third or a fourth. And your work is about movies. So is there any movies that carry this message that language is important? Well, there's one, you know, Now I'm thinking, this year there's a movie from Korea called Decision to Leave. <laughs> But the director Park Chan-wook, and in that movie, it's about a crime, you know, and this police officer detective who's Korean, and the suspect to the crime is a woman from China. And so even though she speaks Korean, they all can tell that she's Chinese because of the words that she uses. And I thought that was very interesting that they tell her, you know, that that even though she speaks fluent Korean, because of the words that she uses to specifically use are too academic. And this happens also like in Spanish, you know, there are things, you know, that even though they're correct, they're not how people really talk. I'm sure them, there's examples of like, you know, people don't say uh, emparedado, even though that's kind of the literal translation for a sandwich. There are many things like that that are like, even though it's correct, it's not how real people talk in colloquially. And sometimes there are scenes in which she She's trying to communicate a very complex philosophical or emotional idea and her Korean is insufficient for her to explain that. Mm -hmm. And so what the director uses in the movie is, you know, she decides to use a translation app on her phone. And so she speaks to the translation app in Chinese and then she plays that to the detective in Korean. And what's interesting about that is like she's crying And even though she's listen, he's listening to what she said in Korean, the voice in the recorder doesn't translate the emotion. So it's sort of like what she's saying now is detached from the emotion because it went through this, you know, translation app. And so I think that's a very interesting sort of an interesting way to approach the way that language, you know, communicates more than words and meanings and, you know, the way that people can. It's not only about what's being said, but the way that is being said. And that's so tied to language and how a person's identity is tied to the way we communicate and how we understand the world through language, you know? And I'm sure many people have said this to you, but the moment you start dreaming in English or dreaming in another language is when you realize that sort of it's become a real part of you. When, when you have unconsciously are thinking in that language, or dreaming in that language, you know, it happens to me often that sometimes I dream myself back in Mexico, you know, that sometimes I'm like, I dream myself back in Mexico, but I'm speaking in English. And so that makes no sense in my dream because I know that that's not how it would happen. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation between film critic Carlos Aguilar and our producer, Fernando Hernandez. If you like this episode, please share it. 
Be sure to check out our episode notes for music credits and other information on this episode at the America the Bilingual website. By the way, Carlos mentioned in this conversation how we all need to remember that when we talk about immigration, we're talking about people's lives and not just numbers. In our next episode, we'll speak with an immigration attorney who witnesses many of these people's lives every day. Be sure to join us for episode 60, Crossing the Borderlands of America's Immigration. My thanks to the members of the America the Bilingual team who worked on this episode, Fernando Hernandez and his production house in Guadalajara, Mexico, Esto No Es Radio. Thanks also to Mim Harrison, our editorial and brand director, and Carla Hernandez at Daruma Tech, who manages our website. Thanks for listening. For America the Bilingual, this is Steve Levine.